Welcome to EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. AIM investing through EIS and BCTs remains a small part of the market, but some attractive features. Matt Curry of Seneca chats through how it works, why they like it, and how it differs from dealing with the unquoted market. If you are enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe through all good podcast services or following the link in the show notes. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonico.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today we are joined by Matt Curry, who is an investment manager at Seneca Partners. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Hi, Brian. Good to be here. As usual, we'd like to start by getting to know a little bit more about you. So can you tell us how you became involved in EIS and VCT fund management? Uh, yeah, so I um, I came through a relatively typical route into the investment space, uh, qualified with, with Big Four um, in Manchester, um, uh, working at Deloitte. Um, and then uh, post-qualifying and, and gaining a little bit more experience, I moved into leverage finance. So working on some of the some of the larger and smaller, um, actually, uh, mid-market private equity deals in and around the, the north, and uh, particularly out, coming out of Manchester and, and the Leeds markets. What I actually found throughout my time at, at RBS working in the leverage finance team and along some of those, alongside some of those institutions was that we, as a, as a northern team, used to work on a, a full spectrum of, uh, of transactions, whereas in, in, in the, the London team, they're a little bit more siloed by sector or by size. Um, I think in in the north, we used to work across everything, and what that gave that gave me exposure to very very small in the grand scheme of things, uh, working capital facilities and acquisition facilities for small tech businesses and 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 such like, uh, right through to multi billion dollar transactions with U.S. private equity or uh, that kind of thing, which was that um, just happened to be based in the north. And what I found in in an organisation like RBS is that the monetary aspects and the financial elements of the of the big deals were much more exciting to a lot of my colleagues than than um, than the smaller ones. But from a from a personal perspective, the the larger transactions you ter- you turn up to these meetings, you'd be at one voice of. 50, 100 people involved in these deals. You'd be you'd have no choice but to fall in line with all the other banks because the deals were often syndicated. And I, I used to actually get a lot more enjoyment and fulfilment out of the smaller deals where I'd turn up to a meeting and it'd be myself and the uh, and the chief exec and the FD trying to, trying to put a structure in place or a facility in place that, that worked for them. Um, so well, that obviously forced us to 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 fully understand their business, to uh, to to work with them, to to put something in place that worked, so that so that we weren't kind of restructuring covenants, however, very quickly, as 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 is often the case with smaller businesses. Um, so we worked much closely, much more closely with those businesses and those management teams than we did on uh, on the larger transactions. And I, and I, I just enjoyed working on them a lot more. So that kind of pushed me into, I think when I first joined RBS, if you've asked me what I would want to do in the future, I would have probably said, gain a lot of experience working in, work across a number of sectors and probably end up in sort of in that mid-market private equity world. And and I think what, what that time working across that full spectrum of deals kind of steered me towards was was working on the smaller ones. And, and that's what kind of led me into into the VC market and, and obviously in the um, in the regions and in the UK, uh, throughout the UK is a lot of that's centered around EIS and VCT because um, that's where that's where it's a little bit more straightforward to raise funds. So um, that there aren't a huge number of regional players in in the VC world, and the, there's certainly there's there's a lot more now than there were then. Um, so I've been at Seneca for for six years now, um, and my, my initial search around regional VCs uh, or, or even UK-based VCs, to be honest, at, at that point, probably steered me towards about one of five participants in in terms of regional deal flow at that level. So that's what um, led led me towards uh, a move to Seneca. Excellent. So you mentioned you now are at Seneca. Do you want to tell us a little bit about who Seneca are and and what what they do? Yeah. So Seneca Seneca is a, a relatively young business itself. We've been going 11, 12 years now. Uh, really spinning out of the um, the previous the global financial crisis uh, uh, with a with a view to filling funding gaps for for SMEs and 
matching those up to investment requirements and appetite from from high net worth investors. And initially, that was kind of very much on a on a deal by deal basis. We were seeing interesting things in the market, and uh, and our founders were working towards putting uh, structures and deals in place that that work to give investors access to the AS reliefs, but also um, from from the investment side allowed allowed them to fund interesting exciting opportunities whilst whilst kind of managing exposure to that to, to the risks and then gradually that spun up that we were doing higher and higher volume of these deals so that spun into our EIS offerings where we we, we now manage um, what's known as our EIS portfolio fund uh, which is effectively a, a discretionary portfolio service offered to investors uh, and, and over time with the the merging of the EIS and the VCT rules effectively uh, the, the, the criteria for, for EIS and VCT are obviously now very very similar that led us towards uh, launching a VCT a few years ago as well so that's what we do on the growth capital side uh, in terms of a tax advantage offering as a whole we also have various IHT offerings for investors, but really we segregate now the, the Seneca business into three core areas, uh, the equity side um, being predominantly growth capital, the lending side, we've got a number of a uh, number of debt propositions, predominantly focused on asset backed offerings. Uh, so we've got a, a, an established stock financing team. Um, we also lend uh, against other uh, property assets. Uh, so we've got a, a bridge and loan book. We've got a, a secured lending offering, a lot of which is also um, property related. We have a, a vehicle lending team that's, that's based out of the same office as us that's um, work, working on uh, flexible flexible funding for, for vehicles uh, and uh, a few other bits and pieces on the on the debt side uh, and then we've also got um, a couple of different advisory offerings within the within the Seneca group that um, all kind of brings that whole piece together we've got a lot of corporate finance experience within the business um, which we lean on from a growth capital side when it comes to investing in these businesses but also working on exit opportunities so as far as the the, the wider Seneca offerings depending on which uh, angle you're coming at it from whether that be someone looking for funding someone looking to invest or advisors kind of tapping into um, our our network of, of offerings there's um, there's, there's quite a lot going on within the Seneca business. Yeah, I remember when I first came across you and it seemed I, I had a little problem almost grasping the sort of the diversity within the business. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think at the time it was slightly loosely organised as well in terms of the, you know how how the different silos operate. But it's all come together a bit more since then. It's a, it's a, we're a very entrepreneurial business. I think that's that that's has its advantages, but also it kind of make things tricky to uh, to sort of pigeonhole in certain areas of the market because if an opportunity lands on the desk. Um, and it and it makes sense and it works and we can we can get experienced people around the table to to bounce it off and and pull advice or funding together then um, we'll 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 go with it. So what what may look like the Seneca Group and businesses at the moment may may, may look very different even in twelve eighteen months time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're especially given the way the economy is going. But we'll we'll maybe come back back to that later. Yeah. So what I wanted to discuss with you today was investing on AIM because you, not so long ago, you said you had your growth EIS fund. You launched an AIM EIS fund. You've always invested in AIM within your EIS and within the VCT. And you're really one of the few managers who have, certainly in EIS, there's only a couple of you who actually do meaningful AIM investments. So we wanted to pick up on that expertise in particular and and just try and dig a little bit of that. And I'm going to start with a sort of more technical question in a sense in terms of when we think about EIS, we all think about and quoted, how come AIM is allowed? <laughs> uh, yes, I mean, it's, you've, you've touched on a few of the, um, the, the interesting points there. It's always, it's, it's a it's a question we get asked quite regularly because uh, obviously the, the criteria around EIS tends to steer people towards uh, earlier stage private mm. opportunities. And those criteria being the 250 employees and the maximum of maximum capital base and the turnover and these sort of things. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the I mean, there's there's probably a couple of things that come into play. The obviously from a, a legislation perspective. 
quoted companies are excluded from 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 EIS and VCT. The, the, there is a carve out of that for for, for the AIM market, mm-hmm. um, which allows uh, AIM listed businesses to, uh, to 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 raise EIS and VCT capital. We, we find it very interesting that a lot of the EIS and VCT market don't invest on AIM because it it, it does feel like you're carving out quite a um, quite an interesting, exciting, and and probably the more mature. EIS BCT qualifying businesses that are out there. Um, now, obviously, everyone's got their reasons for for, for kind of steering in, in different directions. Some some people will look at the the volatility, and that that will that will turn them away from from investing on AIM. We, we really like the 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 the, the opportunities that we see, we really like the, the, the liquidity that we get from from investing on AIM. But essentially, that they, they are the same. They are the same companies. They they, they have to meet the same criteria, um, and we just view them as, um, as as one and the same. We like to build portfolios that have a blend of each. I think the, the target returns in in reality probably do differ um, because they are slightly more mature opportunities that they, they bring with them a level of governance. Um, that that you maybe don't get from day one in terms of the the private company opportunities that we see, but because of that, you probably pay a premium for them on uh, on day one. Um, so that the, the, there are there there are certainly uh, plus points and uh, and negative aspects of, of both. Yeah, I'm I'm going to pick up a couple of things there because you you touch on governance, and I think governance is a very interesting question because AIM has been quoted has been criticised by quoting investors or people used to quote investors as actually not having good governance yeah. and who's you saying actually it's a place of better governance it's like who's right here yeah no i mean well i think the um you, you're right the, the investors experienced investors in in terms of quoted companies uh, would would look at aim and it, and uh, you hear you hear words such as it's, it's aims like the wild west um, <laughs> that, that they probably haven't seen the vast majority of uh, of private opportunities that that, that that we have which are yeah <laughs> uh, which probably are like the wild west i think it is it's all it's all relative isn't it i think compared mm-hmm. to the vast majority of private opportunities that we see uh, the aim quoted opportunities and the, the AIM IPO market and secondary fundraising market but for these EIS VCT qualifying opportunities it, it does bring a level of sophistication that you, you you are required to, to abide by the rules of uh, of AIM that they, they, they all have advisors in and around the business they'll have nomads and brokers responsible for raising the funds um, and they work with those advisors to make sure that investors such as ourselves are, aren't being misled or, or certainly aren't being intentionally misled um which you, you you don't get that level of assurance on the private side and if you do it tends to come with spending an awful lot of time and money getting to the skin getting under the skin of these businesses so that there's the, there's a constant flow of these opportunities on, on, on aim obviously so, some sometimes that's a much stronger source of uh, of deal activity than others um but it does it does in general versus the rest of the is vct market it, it brings that level of sophistication and, and quite often just plain and simply these are larger more mature businesses that have been around slightly longer you mentioned a steady flow there how does the sort of sourcing side work in the sense because when we look at unquoted markets we've had numerous people on and every time i interview someone for review it's like well we rely on a network and we get some few cold approaches and 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 maybe some people got interested twists on that but that's kind of it yeah quote markets don't think really work like that do they no so there's there's there, there's still a number of areas where we we source our our aim deals from uh, the the vast majority of them or a decent proportion of them do come through the broker network uh, that, that that we work very very closely alongside it's probably not as vast as some might assume there's probably 12 15 very very active brokers uh, on the a market who we work very closely with and and the the majority of those guys will be um, already involved or representing some of our existing portfolio so we've got a reason to catch up with them very regularly anyway without kind of picking mm-hmm. up the phone on a on a weekly basis asking what's coming next we're in constant dialogue with them anyway they work very closely with their corporate their in-house corporate finance teams and the analysts their side so we're we're constantly sharing opinions and t- 
touching base with those guys to keep tabs on our existing portfolio. Um, and as a result of that, that constant dialogue and openness of uh, of those relationships, we we get we get a very very decent steer on um, on upcoming activity. Uh, we'll work closely with with them to give an early view that that. The vast majority of them will bounce stuff off their their regular investor base just just to kind of work out and get a little bit more assurance that, that a deal that they're thinking of lining up for the next quarter makes sense to investors, and quite often that'll involve some some level of kind of pre-marketing or, or those kind of early stage conversations around if you were interested, what 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 type of value would you be looking at, what 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 kind of deal makes sense, are they would you be comfortable with anyone taking X Y Z off the table, do you want them to do you want certain key investors locked in that kind of thing which can kind of make or break a, a transaction and mm-hmm. then as, as well as the uh, as the broker network that there's um we, we work very closely with a number of non-execs that, that are very active on, on aim um particularly in in certain sectors so we we're a generalist VCT and EIS manager, but we do we 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 do a decent level of um, a decent proportion of our deals in biotech and life sciences as well as well as um, predominantly on the tech side B two B software propositions make up the, the vast majority of our of our investments across those two the, those two broad areas. We do have a um, a vast network of, of introducers and um, sector-specific expertise within the within the network that that are generally very very up to speed with anything coming to the market, which is probably the they're probably the main, the two main sources of of deals as well as stuff that we've looked at previously from from a private investment perspective. Um, it's quite rare um, that a business that has developed to the stage where it's able to get a significant fundraiser away at IPO. It isn't something that we'll have seen or heard or mentioned or spoken to previously. So generally speaking, we are usually aware of a, of a transaction quite, quite, a long, quite a long way before it actually happens. Mm-hmm. And how competitive are these transactions these days? Because I remember from, you know, I was a fund manager albeit 15 years ago, mm. and I remember dealing with, Sometimes we would deal with people at the sort of very small microcap sort of end of things. And it always seemed to me that the nomads or the brokers were really struggling to pull together sufficient interest for deals. I don't know to what extent the world's evolved since then and whether it, are you trying to fight to get into deals a lot of time or is it a case of, you know, the brokers are still sort of, oh yeah, I'm still trying to find five people or the 10 people or whatever it is to actually fill this deal? Yeah, it's... um. It's it's a mix of the two, to be honest. And there'll be mm-hmm. there's off market deals that that are effectively off market that 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 we like and one or two others are like. But but brokers will acknowledge that it's probably not going to be one that's going to work for everyone. Um, mm-hmm. And and they that they tend to be the more straightforward. In terms of the deals that kind of go full full market wide, and you you know from day one every every uh, some VCT fund that has any interest in in aim are going to have taken a look at it. Um, what if if it stacks up based on the conversations we've had and the diligence we've done, you can be relatively comfortable on the way in that that there'll be a decent level of appetite and and probably some level of scale back on your initial mm-hmm. order. A, a lot of the a lot of the deals that that we look at are relatively oversubscribed uh, and that's where those those relationships and those early looks and 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 that kind of the 6 12 18 months 2 years that we've we've sort of put into these transactions getting to know management teams and working in the right way with uh, the broker network come in handy um we they they, they do like having a level of even if there's non EIS VCT money around the table they do like having an element of EIS money in there because it locks it effectively locks people in for three years so they know they've got a supportive uh, shareholder base when they come to market that that isn't going anywhere on the flip side of that the eis and vct market do tend to like the fact that non-eis and vct um, institutions are also interested in the business because that gives them access to to a shareholder base which will probably become more and more acquisitive of, of shares as as time goes on and that gives them level of liquidity and a bit of comfort that there's people out there that aren't getting the same 
comfort uh, from from their tax breaks or from from the um, the, the, the the kickbacks that that their investors get on the uh, on the tax side to, uh, to to get comfortable with parting parting ways with with their funds on the way in and it still works regardless of the uh, of where your money comes from so the the the, the two very much uh, go hand in hand and the structures around taking EIS and VCT money alongside non-EIS and VCT money has, have become a lot more sophisticated and it's, it's very much um, sort of a well-trodden path now to um, to, to raise a decent amount and, and obviously from an EIS and VCT perspective that that very much de-risks the investment if the, if they're if we're overfunding these businesses and there's non-EIS and non-VCT money out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, presumably that allows bigger rounds where you know if you, if you're restricted as an EIS to ten million or whatever the limit is uh, for that year or whatever, if they can come and actually raise another five or ten or fifteen or whatever it is that is non EIS, that just puts businesses on much better footing. Yeah, very much so, and that, and that's a that's a key indicator really that 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 we like to see in in terms of the quality of these businesses and the appetite that's likely to be out there and and is out there from day one but is is likely to grow significantly as uh, as they hit their their key milestones once they're on the market or once they've got the the, the fundraiser away mm-hmm. yeah so you mentioned earlier about a steady flow and I'd like to dig <laughs> into a little bit more on that Good choice of words <laughs> <laughs> so, so two reasons I want to dig in. One is, I think, if I if I think of the number of opportunities on name as opposed to the number of opportunities in the private market, clearly the number of number of opportunities name is an order of magnitude smaller. Yeah. Even less world, well, there's there's like a thousand quoted companies. Not all of them are be raising money. Not all of them are even if they are raising money will be eligible. So the the, the potential deal flow is. Much smaller, and and instinctively that sort of you know raises questions about sort of restricted opportunity set. Yeah, I mean, so it's uh, it's one of the. I mean, I said at the start we're we're often a little bit confused about why a lot of VIS funds don't don't look at aim, but it's it's also something that in a lot of senses we're we're, we're pretty pleased about because as I said, the brokers, the companies, they, they do like to have an element of VIS VCT funds in there. I think the DIS rules obviously give them access to those those longer term investors. As you said, that there is a there's a finite number of deals that, that that come to aim we look for about a 50 50 split in our portfolio of of publicly listed businesses obviously on aim and and private businesses and i think we we just by virtue of of having a certain caliber of of deals we, we don't see many deals on aim that you would look at at a glance and say absolutely not one for us whereas in the private market 90 percent gets Kiboshed, kiboshed within about 30 seconds because it's in a sector we don't like, it's got a strange structure or it's not qualifying or whatever else. The brokers act as our filter to, to a certain extent for a lot of those transactions. And you'll get, you'll get a phone call saying, I'm looking at this, it's perfect for you, but it's not EIS VCT. So we step away from a few of those. But the, the, there's, there's already that it's been through a proportion of our own process that we would go through an equivalent deal on a on a private business. Um, it, it's been through that by the time it, it reaches us. Um, that's not to say we, we cut corners. It, it's to say that a lot of the diligence and a lot of the background work and all that kind of good stuff that, that we would be doing is is sort of offered to you in the in the form of analyst notes and and a well uh, a well presented management pack and uh, and all that kind of good stuff, which a lot of the private opportunities it, you you three six months down the line before you've before you've fed back what you what what you need to see to be able to invest in this business um so that it, it there's certainly a, a lower uh, I mean, is, a lower is that quantum. better or worse or just different in the sense that you know as a quoted company there's a limit to diligence you can do because you know you you can't get all the way under the hood in the way that you could in a private company but the information is probably better presented yeah it's um as you say, it's it's good and bad. You are also often fully aware that these these a lot of these companies are very well advised, so they know mm-hmm. they they know what you're likely to be looking for. 
they know what your questions are likely to be and it, it's very much a, a marketing document whereas some of the private opportunities you see it's it's kind of some raw numbers and a conversation and whatever and it's for you to do the digging and that's where you find what you really like about a business or what you really don't like about a business and and in some ways you might you might not have that access or the ability to to dig that deep on the uh uh, on the aim one so there's there's certainly uh presumably posi- if, if they do have negatives. that presentation sort of thing going on that in- instinctively i start to think oh well if they're well briefed and well rehearsed yeah that can hide a lot of stuff yeah no that, that's it, it's a it's a constant debate we have it, it's you know, they that they're seasoned uh professionals who are uh, have made a living out of steering people in one way or one way or another. Whereas sometimes you get with the earlier stage private businesses, you get warts and all, and a, a decent level of uh, of access to to management and the rest of the team and whatever else. And you can you do feel like you're kind of left to your own devices to to form your own view, which some some sometimes on the aim deals that we look at it, it can feel like it's been uh, very much packaged up in, in terms of what what they know investors are, are going to want to see and, and that, yeah as, as you say it's, it's, it's kind of double-edged sword so coming back to sort of deal flow and what you can do it seems to me that you the steady flow you spoke about is presumably varies over time i mean you i i, I Every couple of years, I see articles about the death of AIM. Yeah. IPOs in particular go up and down a lot. We've obviously been through a very good time for IPOs. And the last few months, probably not quite so good. And I'm not sure what, what people are thinking about the near future. But they're probably not as optimistic as they were if we had this conversation 12 months ago. How steady is that? Uh, so yeah, so steady was steady was probably the wrong word, but um, I think over a, over a longer term rolling average, um, the, the deal the deal flow is certainly there. I think you just need to be prepared for that three, six, even twelve month period where where it's not quite as uh, as strong. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of the time, those that's where we benefit. I think from being able to to take advantage of of peaks and troughs in the in the public and the uh, and the private arena with a lot of the a lot of the stronger opportunities that get relatively close to to an IPO or certainly looking down that path they'll they'll quite often flip to maybe a pre-IPO round and kind of give it 12 months runway and 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 look to look to go forward with a transaction at that point or, or they'll flip and it'll be a it'll be a smaller fundraise on, on, a, on a private structure and uh, and they'll 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 push on and they, and they won't go on the market but it gives us that access to high quality businesses without kind of being tied to to one route or the other um we we all know that the the, the general sentiment on aim generally di- dictates whether whether deals are going to get away of the market so there'll be there'll there'll be deals of of varying quality coming to market if if the market's down you te- you either get very very strong businesses coming still coming to market because they can get it away, or very very def- desperate businesses coming to market for fundraising. In which case, you might be able to you might be able to invest in businesses that still that still tick a few boxes from from our perspective, but at relatively cheap prices. So there's 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 certainly opportunities out there, regardless of uh, of what kind of market we're looking at, and the nature of a lot of the EIS and VCT qualifying opportunities that we look like uh, that we look at, a lot of them are still cash hungry. They're still loss making. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're, they're bad businesses. It, it means they've they've raised x x amount eighteen months ago on the basis it gave them eighteen months runway. They've hit. They might have hit all the milestones they were intending to hit throughout that eighteen months, and for things that have taken place outside of their their control and through through no fault of their own they're having to raise at a lower a lower value than than they were 18 months earlier before they'd done any of that good stuff so there's certainly um the the volume kind of bounces around a little bit to a certain extent but um in in a in a way the the uh, the the quality probably doesn't change significantly because of that factor that, that a lot of good businesses on aim have uh, have 
come to market at some point on the basis it gives them access to capital. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they've done anything wrong in that in that period. And uh, and you as an opportunistic investor um, can get access to that at, at different price than you might have been able to a year ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it, it's it's definitely a, an interesting. Well, I think now, in particular, it's very interesting in terms of uh, how how the atmosphere is. So, another thing I wanted to ask you about was once you've actually have invested, the relationship you have with the company is necessarily going to be different from what you it would be if if it was an unquoted company. If nothing else, there's sort of rules about what you can and can't know and insider things and, and, and whatever. Yeah. How do you as an EIS manager sort of deal with that? Yeah, so I, I mean, we're, we're quite active in terms of managing our portfolio. That's pr- from a, a kind of desk-based uh, portfolio management management perspective, as opposed to being active in in the businesses. What, mm-hmm. that, mean, what that means, however, is that we, we do we would have a strong preference to always be in a position to to sell holdings if we if we feel like we're either overexposed or something something's popped up from out of left field that that we think means this this investment is no longer a a solid hold anymore um so we 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 are by by nature removed from from the day-to-day activities of a business we're not particularly close to um, the operational aspects of, of those businesses, but we do, to a, to a certain level, stay very close to, to those management teams and, and where there's uh, where there's details that don't fall foul of, of, of any sort of insider trading rules and where it's kind of a, a case of a, a, a more general catch-up without being kind of anywhere near any uh, any detailed information. It's kind of whether it's more of a kind of market sentiment or sort of forward-looking conversations from a from each company perspective, we, we are relatively close to to, to how they're how they're working in their chosen markets and uh, and how things are looking going forward. But no no more so than a than a very very active retail investor might be able to um a lot of the uh, a lot of the company ceos that we speak to will will always reference to uh will always reference the fact that some of their um some of their more active personal investors will 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 try their hand at, at getting very very close to the management teams and that they're constantly getting emails from investors and phone calls from investors and and our, our preference would, would generally be for uh the management teams of our of our aim holdings not to be uh, bogged down by managing shareholders we want we want them uh-huh. to be uh, running the business so on that on that basis we um we probably we certainly have greater access to management teams than individual shareholders might do but that 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 doesn't necessarily give us any any further information flow it, it just gives us um a, a little bit of a a more detailed slant on on the mark on the the, the information that's out there in the public domain, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems to me a lot of these companies probably don't aren't the scale where they could have a de- dedicated IR person or something, um, which would sort of alleviate those, the burden management. Yeah, there's. Uh, I mean, there, there is a blend. Some of the, as we touched on, some of the aim, some of the aim quoted businesses are pretty sizable operations now, and and they they, they might have listed. You taking EIS VCT funds and therefore they're in our portfolio, but a lot of them are hundreds of millions of of revenue and and um, extremely sizable businesses. Yeah, they've kind of moved on a little bit. You mentioned about selling, and it seems to me this is one of the challenges, almost actually, or, or a different challenge of managing AIM shares, where you have nominally you have a market. Yeah. In practice, obviously, you own probably sizable percentages of companies, and the the market tends to be less liquid. And you know, if you've got something that's got to billion, you know, hundreds of millions of revenues and you know, hundreds of millions of market cap, maybe less, maybe there's more liquidity. But a lot of what you're dealing with, liquidity is going to be limited, particularly in the sort of size of shareholding, size of shareholding you've got. How do you manage that? We we will generally have a a target price in in mind that we think the company is worth or we, we think the company is um, it kind of justifies us us selling at what what we what we tend to do is is sell 
uh, on on the slightly lower quantities as that as that price is is building up. Um, we, mm-hmm. we tend to stick to. I mean, this is, and this is the same rationale across the private portfolio. We always say that you should you should be looking to sell effectively before you actually want to, because at the point you decide you want to sell is probably the point that somebody else decides it's, it's not worth buying it. Um, so this, you, uh, you, you think you're probably a little bit too late in that sense. Yeah, which is the same under the, uh, under a lot of the private holdings. We've 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 mm-hmm. run a few run a few sales processes on the on the private portfolio, and and it tends to be those those processes uh, that that kind of catch you off guard because the, there's you've kind of gone out to test the market, or we've had a couple where they've gone out to raise further funds, and they've they've appointed an advisor, and we've worked closely with the board, and all of a sudden a, a buyout offers turned up out of nowhere, which we weren't actually looking for, and we we didn't actually want, but. The, the the price at that point kind of hits our numbers and and it's because at that point everything's flying in the right direction and someone's prepared to overpay for it whereas mm-hmm. at, at the point we decide right push push a button the, the the values hit what we were looking for here it's probably because there's there's a wider sentiment the market's flatline there's headwinds coming in the next 6 12 months and chances are you won't it, despite the revenue maybe being slightly higher than it was 6 months earlier you won't get the price that that you would have got 12 months ago yeah you're selling because it's fully valued or yeah or and if you can see that the prospects aren't so good everybody else can too yeah uh, which is the which is the same rationale really whether it's a, a private investor having a, having a pop at those numbers going in the right direction and therefore p- punters on aim taking our shares off us or another institution on aim taking our shares off us it's the same rationale as it would be for a, a third party buyer coming in and buying one of our private private holdings out of our portfolio so obviously the challenge on aim is the the, the liquidity, but we 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 manage our way out of those holdings, um, and it's the same, it's the same rationale. While the business is going in the right direction, there will be liquidity there, and and there'll be people who want to take those shares off your off your hands. So, so what do you mean by manage your way out? Because that's that sounds like an easy thing to say, and is, if liquidity is slightly challenging, maybe not so easy to do. Yeah, so I mean the, every every. Every share within within reason, apart from sort of catastrophic um, events aside, every share on AIM has has got its got its value. And if you want to sell a significant proportion of a of a company in in one go, chances are you probably won't get the the price that you see on screen mm-hmm. for that for that holding. Um, and if you do, you've 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 done very well, and you you probably shouldn't be selling it. <laughs> because <laughs> there's, there's someone out there who knows that uh, they can get a little bit more for it if the the general way that that we we go about it is working closely with sometimes it can involve the company that uh, they, they quite often know of other shareholders or other institutions just throughout their kind of discussions in the market that, that are keen to uh, increase their stakes so sometimes it's working alongside the company often it often it involves the broker that 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 looks after that business um or or Similarly, we can we can we can manage that uh, holding sort of blindly in the background by selling into the market. Um, what we do know is uh, orders, sell orders that that go out into the market of significant size will will impact the the price you uh-huh. get for those for, for those shares because not everyone's super comfortable with someone of a significant stake looking to bail out of a name. Uh, an aim uh, holding, uh, as you said. Um, yeah, I remember from my own days as a fund manager, we had several of those circumstances. We took over a, a microcap trust, mm. and I had to negotiate a couple. And there's something I remember. I think I think it was trading at 20p when we took over. By the time we sold, it was down to about 11. Yeah. And then as soon as as soon as we got rid of it, it was back at 20p. And we're yeah. like, what's going on here? But, yeah, it was you. <laughs> It was us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is, uh, as I say, that it's the same. It's a similar kind of thought process around the the private holdings. Isn't the kind of sell while there's uh, while there's appetite out there from 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 someone to get in. But th- what you might have to do is manage that over a, a quite quite a few smaller sale orders to uh, to drip those out into the market, so it so it doesn't impact the price. Similarly, y- y- you might find that the brokers out there desperate for 
for shares and one of the market makers will take those off your hands relatively sharpish and everyone does all right out of it so it's a balanced uh, and we, we approach each one very differently um the, the, there's some shares in our in our own portfolio that can go for a couple of days without anyone trading any shares the, there's others uh-huh. there's others where six maybe seven figures worth of uh, of shares are traded r- regularly every day and us sat here with a 500k up to two three million pound stake we can get those out quite easily over a couple of days so it, it, it's very much a case-by-case basis and we're we're, we're cognizant that we 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 kind of need to do um what we can to get the best price for for our investors which um is often it's not as straightforward as, as pushing a pushing a button to tell someone to sell the shares for us no no yeah it's, it's not like you were trying to sell a bar your barclays or your shell or something and yeah yeah a million pounds of that is gears it's like brokers don't even blink an eye yeah and as you touched on the market is generally slightly more skeptical of aim hold aim companies as it is for large cap multinationals it, it, it the, the the view probably rightly so tends to be that if if someone who holds a four percent stake in this business wants to get out um we should all be a little bit wary of that mm-hmm. yes yeah it, it, someone knows the business well once yeah you know, but at the same time we all know there's other reasons that, yeah, I mean, particularly I mean, the price as well. on the AIS side, we've we, we've kind of been out and raised our money on the basis that we'll be looking to exit these holdings in four to six years, and if the price is if the price at that point works for us, and we're not sat there thinking it's it's going to go absolutely bonkers overnight, then it makes sense for us to. And sometimes it's not always all the all the capital. Sometimes it makes sense for us to de-risk at three three four years, but leave half of it in there to 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 see where it goes uh, post uh, post that de-risking process yeah and how do fund investors sort of see this because it seems to me you know eis has come out of a period so if 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 we if we spoken 5 years ago i think a lot of investors in eis were like okay 3 years and i want to exit as soon after that yeah the top people sort of investments that people are getting now that doesn't work for them are no. people still saying, well, okay, I've had my three years, I want to get liquidity as quick as I can? Or are they saying, well, actually, I'm invested in a good company, I want the best return, and I'm patient to say if this takes six years or seven years, that's fine? Uh, I think you you get a mix of both. <laughs> the um, some, some people, and I think it, it, you you get both on the on the basis that the, that the returns work at, at, at both. If if the return mm-hmm. the, the the returns, if the returns don't work based on people might be prepared to take one and a half, two times return after three years and a day and roll it back in and get another 30% tax relief. You, you might find that other people are quite happy to be in for 10 years as long as they get eight times their money back, which is is, is the challenge. I think you, you come unstuck a little bit when you leave someone's money in there for seven, eight years and you've, you, you've got a, a challenge giving them their money back or a modest return, then they start asking why it's taking you eight years to <laughs> to generate one one point two times the money, mm-hmm. uh, which is is the pushback that you that you get a little bit in EIS and um, VCT world that the, the if it's worth keeping in there after four or five years, particularly on AIM where you do have that option, uh, if it's worth leaving mm-hmm. in there after four or five years, then it should be worth it. You should be able to demonstrate why it's been worth it. Um, because if if not, you've you've kind of sat on their money for particularly now with interest rates going up, you, that, that 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 money's probably worth even at a low risk environment, it's worth five percent to someone in 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 a bank somewhere for for longer term under under a longer term structure. Yeah. And and investors take account of sort of price volatility in that because I'm thinking, you know, we we've obviously had a pretty weak year for AIM. Mm. Some parts of AIM a terrible year. If they invested a year ago, the share prices are going to be underwater now. If you get back to 1.2x in three years, then you've probably actually over the next three years, you're probably delivering a really good return. Yeah, I think they they probably don't there's obviously a few elements that come into kind of the cause and effect of that mm-hmm. of that yeah. macro environment. I think the if you were to explain to an investor 
who came into one of our funds three years ago that they'd ride through COVID and Ukraine and the energy crisis and whatever else, and you and you get out at one and a half times return after four years. I think they'd probably think, well, compared to my pension pot's down by 15%. So mm-hmm. compared, compared to these guys who are investing in relatively risky stuff, that, that feels like I've done all right. Yeah. Um, on, on the flip side, you, you will get you will get people who, who can't can't quite uh, put those pieces together in, in their own head that think I gave you X at this point. You turn around, you send me a statement every six months and, and it's now worth this. Um, that what what's going on um but the i think the, the 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 nuance that a lot of people the differences between the private holdings and and the uh, and the aim holdings in our portfolio i don't think investors quite have the the experience or the visibility to kind of match up in their own heads is that the we our our aim holdings are obviously valued based on latest latest mm-hmm. publicly available prices um we that price might be dictated by the fact that t- two or three investors decided they need to go out and buy some Christmas presents on the on the twenty third of <laughs> December and have and have cashed yeah. out regardless of what that price is at. Your you, your holdings on AIM are generally held at the value that your top 0.1 percent of investors of shareholders are prepared to accept for their shares, whereas in a in a private company holding. We all know that under under most companies' articles or on, under institutional articles, a it would need our our permission to to sell the business for X, um, and and b more than seventy five percent or more than ninety percent of shareholder shareholder approvals would be required to 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 force anyone to sell a business at that value. So it it's despite the fact that there is a number on screen that tells us that that's what those shares are worth. There's a there's a disconnect between what that company is worth and it that that can swing both ways because in racier markets when things are looking very rosy and everyone's very bullish, we, it, us as institutional investors are very happy to ride that wave on the way up and and tell tell people that this company is worth 200 million. Six months later, when everyone needs to cash out the shares to pay the mortgage and pay their energy bills, we can't we can't sit there and tell everyone that this business was worth 200 million six months ago it's ne- it's now worth 40 million the reality of the situation is if that was a private company holding we'd have probably invested at somewhere between those two and it'd still be held at somewhere between those two because it, on the basis it's well funded and the business is still moving in the right direction the 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 process doesn't happen as regularly as it does for when when there's that live that live pricing on screen that people are using to dictate what what their funds valued at yeah i was listening to somebody they made a good point that we all have this idea of what fair value means in a quoted market but we tend to forget there's something that's that's only seen momentarily as the yeah. share price shoots past it quickly on the way up or past it quickly on the way down, you yeah. know, depending on which direction the market's going and sometimes in private markets it's better at finding that if you like that true true price or the true value because there's only one deal every six months but that deal has to be very considered to do that mm. yeah it's kind of been through uh, a little bit more diligence and you like to think whoever's paying x million pounds for for, for whoever's gone through that private transaction has, has done a little bit of research into uh, in, into working out what these what these companies are worth to potential acquirers so it's um there there is a balance and uh, as i say we short short of sitting here and telling you that the prices that appear on everyone's screen are wrong um which <laughs> we're, we're certainly not arrogant enough to, to 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 take that stance um but 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 in essence the the, the reality of the situation is we we wouldn't sell at that price uh, and we're, we're holding it on the basis that the macro the company's still progressing and the macro drivers will mean that there'll be appetite for our shares at, at a higher level at some point in the future Yes. Now, I used to bait people a little bit by saying the price is always wrong. You just don't necessarily know necessarily yeah. know how how it's wrong. Yeah. yeah That's exactly. kind of the inefficiency of markets. Yeah. Obviously, just now we're in, as we've referred to a couple of times, interesting times. I'm not going to give you a forecast of where the mar- 
ask you to give me a forecast of where the market's going. But how are you finding the current market and how people are sort of seeing things? I think in, in terms of our existing holdings, we've probably been on, uh, in terms of our aim portfolio, we've, we've probably been broadly flat since about March. Uh, so in terms of that, that point I was making earlier around market sentiment and forward-looking appetite and people's personal situations kind of dictating where the market is, is heading, I think that panic, that, that kind of macro panic on AIM as, as is very much priced in now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to sit here and say that, 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 that the, the prices aren't going any lower. I think what what we're now seeing is that we've certainly seen over the last few months that that good news has 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 been met with a a reaction from from a lot of the a lot of our aim portfolio. Whereas mm-hmm. I think six, nine, 12 months ago, good news was coming out and you'd see prices trickle up by a few percent because it sounded exciting. And then generally people would use that as an opportunity to sell. And you'd come, you'd, you'd come out with a, with a game-changing announcement that the company's been working towards for three years and the share price, the share price ends up further down than, it, than, than what you thought was already the bottom. Because I think yes. pe- people are sat there, private investors and some institutions to a certain extent are sat there looking after this this portfolio of AIM companies thinking, as soon as we get a chance, we need to get rid of that one. We need to get rid of that one um, because the, the risk appetite's changed and people are sat there sort of wondering what's coming next. And and I think that that feeling has as certainly tailed off a little bit over the last six months. We've seen we've see, seen some significant announcements in our portfolio that have been met um, with a lot of buying activity. Uh, we've we've had multiple portfolio companies on AIM that have been up certainly more than fifty percent. I think one or two have have doubled over the last six months. That that's kind of purely driven by significant significant announcements within those particular businesses rather than a, a wider recovery in the market. I think we're, we're still seeing those businesses that have got slower news flow or that seem to be taking longer to deliver the progress that they were that, that, that they'd originally sold investors on that they're still being they're still being hit. Um, but it's given us a lot more comfort that there are buyers and sellers out there, whereas for about six months, it certainly felt like there were only sellers out. <laughs> Yes, so hopefully we're more in a two-sided market. Yeah, you feel you feel like your winners should win, and and your losers will probably lose worse than they would have done in a in a in an extreme bull market. But we're we're certainly it feels like there's a little bit more balance to it, and I, I don't know where that's coming from. Maybe it's kind of purely on the basis that there's 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 people out there that have been drawn in by the cheap prices i think a lot of people have commented on the the movement in um some of the higher risk asset classes like nfts and crypto and that kind of stuff which had, which has probably driven people back towards something that they can actually understand and research and and, and whatever else like which, they have intrinsic value yeah it might actually be worth something um at some point but uh yeah, so I I think that as I say that that's probably the, the the only the only sort of nugget that I can say from from observations across our portfolio that it does now feel like there are buyers of undervalued shares out there, which for for us for a period of time it didn't feel like there were. Well, that sounds positive. At least at least it's going in the right direction. Yeah. What I'd like to do now is move on to our favourite questions. So we'll throw these at you and get your brief thoughts on on what you, on your answers. Yep. So what was the most recent publicly announced investment you made and why did you make it? We invested in a an ed tech business, if you can call it that, a business called North Coders, our, our name. It's a Manchester-based business that deals with um, training purposes and uh, apprenticeships and corporate training for predominantly uh, coding te- technology training where there's a where there's a huge skill gap in in the UK. Um, so that's a business that that listed on AIM about twelve months ago. So the uh, last in some some point in 
towards the end of 2021, I think, when it when it IPO'd. Um, we looked at it then, and we we liked the business at that point. Uh, strangely, because of the uh, this probably demonstrates some of the shift in in sentiment across the market. We we felt at that point it it might not have been well received by the the retail market on AIM. Because it's a it's um it's a proper trading business. It it, it it's uh, cash generative. It, it has substantial corporate clients that work with it on a on a regular and repeat basis. Um, and we liked that about it. We just felt that the business uh, at that point kind of needed to prove itself and on the market before we were able to uh, to get there. And uh, thankfully, they've they've done just that. So the business was um, the share price was up 50, 60 percent at the time of the follow on fundraise. But the business has, has moved on significantly in that time. So um, we were happy to support it second time around and uh, excited to see where they can get it to. Sounds good. So in the classic VC triumvirate of market product management, we know they're all important, but which one do you think is the most important? I would say always management. <laughs> I think it's I think it's probably management for different reasons across uh, our private portfolio and our aim aim portfolio. I think the um on the private side you 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 know that the original plan that you invest in isn't going to uh isn't going to come to fruition for a variety of number for a variety of reasons, and and you you need to back a management team that's agile and switched on enough to to be able to to pivot and restructure and and whatever they, they move these businesses around to make sure that they're well placed to uh, to to um, reap the rewards. Depending on uh, which area their business kind of feels like it's it's taking off. Um, I think on the on the aim. Um, on the aim side of our portfolio, I think there's an awful lot goes into public and market perception of of management. Obviously, uh-huh. I think uh, for the same reasons as the private companies, we, we 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 like to back strong management teams. But I think what's what's just as important on aim is that the rest of the market agrees that they're uh, they're the right management team. <laughs> now, but I think probably secondary to management on aim is probably market. Uh, we see businesses that we that we we are lukewarm on doing very well because they happen to fall into a, a certain sector uh, and we see businesses that we're extremely uh, extremely positive about are doing even better than expected because they're in a certain sector and i think investors tend to be geared to, to tend to be steered towards uh, certain sectors at a certain point in time on aim probably more so than than they are in the private markets you tend to find the vast majority of investors out there in private businesses are they're focused on tech, whether it's whether tech's a hot space or not. Um, whereas your retail investors all all kind of shift around from sector to sector. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. So we did um, the one that jumps out to me from from the last few years. We uh, and it won't surprise you to 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 hear that there were many investment opportunities on AIM that were heavily pitched around benefiting significantly from uh, resourcing around COVID. Uh, so mm-hmm. we we, uh, we invested in the IPO of a business called Abingdon Health, uh, which was heavily involved in the the sourcing of, of uh, testing facilities and, uh, and testing products around COVID. And not just COVID, um, very much very much around viral infections uh, on an ongoing basis, which were, because of COVID, were then going to become a significant requirement for for society as a whole on an ongoing basis. Um, unfortunately, it was underpinned by one specific contract and, a, and a, um, some some agreements in place with uh, with the government and with um, uh, with. Um, uh, the Department for Health and Social Care, I think it was, that um, that, that, that then turned into um, a, a bit of a dispute. Uh, so that business has suffered significantly based on 
Um, probably a little bit of market sentiment that it was a, it was a kind of flash in the pan around um, around COVID itself, um, despite the fact that the, the business will will it w- was kind of a market leader in its space. It it produced a test and worked with its partners to produce tests that that were absolutely required at that point and were and were very much in demand. Um, mm-hmm. Fortunately for us, we we saw it as a um, we saw it as, as an interesting opportunity, but we didn't. We certainly weren't buying the house on it, and, and we we wanted some exposure to it because of the the long the, the longevity of the the tests that they were that they were um, that they were providing into the market. But um, it's certainly not one that's gone to plan, and um, the, the the share price is uh, significantly down on on where it was. And I think it's been a lesson for us. We've we've had similar circumstances in the across the portfolio where management teams have talked around opportunities in in covid or benefiting from very short-term factors um and it rarely ends well um it, you tend to get a significant degree of, of retail support the share price goes absolutely nuts and then uh, and then you all look, you all end up feeling a bit a little bit stupid by the time it's uh, it all comes to fruition or, or more often than not doesn't come to fruition yeah, it, it seems to me as one of the challenges of fund management is, is discerning difference between a trend and a fad, mm. and it's not easy. Yeah, and I think that one in particular, at the time, you could certainly make a case either way. But I think they, I think what what we what we came to the conclusion afterwards, I think if it was a trend, we should have been. Back in the main beneficiary of the, of the trend, not the, not just the guys who were sort of sat in the background making making the tests. We we should we should have kind of been backing people who are in a, who are a little bit closer to the space and and making the right noises around creating a significant degree of, of intra- infrastructure and benefiting society as a whole to to work its way through that. But I, I'm not sure they, these were the guys. <laughs> oh. Oh, lesson learned, hopefully. Yeah. So the EIS and VCT industry that we work in is fantastic in many ways, but it's not perfect. How would you like to change it? I would. I think EIS, in our view and in my view, I think EIS probably needs a, a little bit greater uh, visibility and accountability for investors, and I think that's where where you guys coming really really nicely and that's the, the 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 good the good job that that you guys do um i think the, the there's from the outside looking in i think there's certain things that taken on face value look great about eis and i think there's there's, there's other things that I mean, we, we we place a, a huge emphasis on exit proceeds and and delivering pounds and pence back into investors pockets and i think the I'm not sure the industry as a whole does that, and I think the there's a there's a going back to the aim point. There, there's there's a perception as well that that aim is a an, an exit on aim is is maybe not as as good a result for investors as as a private exit. And I think a, one of um, a relatively well-known market commentator said to me when when I, this, this, they asked me the question on a similar on a similar Q and A type thing to to what we're doing now. Uh, have you got any good uh, examples of exits recently? And I reeled off a couple of AIM exits, and they said, uh, "No, have you got? Yeah, but have you got any examples of like real exits?" And I said, <laughs> "I said, well, we've really given them three times the money." <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think there's a there is a perception around yeah there is a perception around Dame that it, it's it, it's easier to deliver those exits and and then but I think that doesn't quite marry up with why everyone's not doing it um, mm. so I think if uh, that, that, probably a little bit more awareness around where where funds are going how your managers working to to manage them uh, and and I think that probably needs reflecting in in charging structures as well our our AMEIS fund is is slightly different from a charging structure than um than our mainstream stuff because we 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 manage it on a uh, in a different way it doesn't doesn't need the the resources out there to attend board meetings every week and mm-hmm. and that kind of good stuff so it's um I think I'd 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 certainly add a little bit more awareness to investors of of the ins and outs of how your managers working really. Okay. So as listeners know, I'm an avid reader and I'm always keen to get ideas for books. Is there anything out there you like and would recommend? 
I like, from a fiction perspective, I like anything. I like an author called Ben Mesrich, who who writes a lot of, a lot of based on a true story type stuff around um, uh, financial events. And he he wrote the books around that were the basis for the Social Network film and Bringing Down the House or uh, Twenty One, the Blackjack movie. Um, the, these these kind of these kind of books that he's he's written quite a number of titles in that in that space around sort of large scale finance well known stories around financial events, uh, but makes makes them uh, writes them up in a in a very entertaining and gripping way. I've a feeling I've seen I've seen his Blackjack book, which is actually very good. But I didn't realise he did the Social Network as well. Yeah, he's done uh, he's he's done a few. There's um there's a few more about oil traders and a few other bits of derivatives traders. Um, that, that are very very gripping stories. On, from a non-fiction perspective, I, I like uh, my other passion is uh, is sport. I like books that kind of link the two passions so anything around um linking business and sport and and that kind of stuff um a big fan of the there's a book called legacy that a guy called james kerr wrote about the about the all blacks and how their how how their great habits and culture um can can be applicable to to any team or organization that's um that's interesting reading a friend of mine called tom young who's a who's a a sports psychologist originally he writes he he wrote, wrote a great book where he interviewed leaders in sport um, uh, it, from from various sports, Premier League managers, right through to Ryder Cup captains and top level golfers, cricket, rugby, American football, uh, and applying them to everyday life and, and business. Um, which I really like that kind of link between um, between my two passions. Really, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. When you can link these things, that's fantastic. So, if anyone wanted to find out more about what you're doing at Seneca, where should they go? Uh, come to you guys, I think. Um, <laughs> it's probably first uh, first protocol. That's very nice of you. Um, <laughs> but we're uh, we'll link to the Seneca website in the in the show notes as well. Yeah, very very much so. The uh, um, the Seneca website's a helpful uh, helpful bit of uh, resource and obviously there's, there's contact details and phone numbers on there as well so anything that, uh, that 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 anyone needs to know on top of that feel free to uh, give uh, myself or one of the team a, a ring that sounds great thank you very much for coming on today matt i've really enjoyed chatting about him it's taking me back a little bit <laughs> no thank you thanks for having me i hope you enjoyed that insight into aim investing through vcts and eis even though it's a niche it really is attractive for some investors. As usual, you can get full show notes with links at harmonandco.com forward slash podcast. If you liked what you hear, please give us a review with lots of stars and Apple podcasts. You can also subscribe directly on all good podcast services and players or through the link in the show notes. We can be contacted at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Thanks for listening and we'll be back in two weeks time.